With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Do not touch your iPhone or your Android or whatever you're listening to this podcast on. I know I'm not Jonah Goldberg. I'm David French. But even though this is not Jonah and you're already disappointed, I'm about to completely eradicate your disappointment because this is going to be a great remnant pod. Why? Not because of me, but because of my guest. I've got Greg Lukianoff here, the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, my good friend, one of my favorite people in the world. And Greg and I are going to have, I don't know, Greg, is it too much to cast this as the definitive conversation <laughs> about free speech on campus and cancel culture with a bonus of Snyder Cut material. Is I don't that too think much? you're going far enough, David. I think this is the platonic form of the truth of all of those things. Oh, I well, you know, I, I, I try to be modest and humble <laughs> about these things. So you're about to hear the platonic form of discussion <laughs> about one of the most frustrating topics. Oh my God, yeah in america which is free speech cancel culture free speech culture okay mm -hmm. so this this is something that i mean if you spend any time on twitter sometimes it feels like this is 70 percent of twitter's content yep. is arguing about those things but what i wanted to do first was some was set the stage a little bit because one of the great things about having greg on greg is um as I said, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, before that, legal director of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, has been a, what was the first, what, when was the first year you dove into the free speech wars? Uh, the first year was really um, 1995, uh, because that's what, why I went to law school to become a First Amendment lawyer. Um, and that was the, <laughs> it, it's a thing you might not have heard of, um, Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm unfamiliar. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar. It's, it's, it's obscure, David. I don't, no, no, nobody would nobody would have heard of it. And that's actually what got me into. Um, uh, I was already like into free speech because you know I'm a first generation American with a British mom and a Russian dad, and and I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, nobody had the same ideas of what politeness was. So free speech made sense. And I also have that yeah. kind of first generation patriotism. You know, that, where mm -hmm. I, I I think there are really great things about the U.S. And so I was already pretty free speechy. I went to I went to undergrad, was a student journalist, watched everybody try to shut you down for whatever reason they could come up with there in their head. And then uh, Section 230 came up. I was into tech law. And that's actually what made me decide to go to law school. Um, and from law school, I did a year doing patent law and then got um, invited to be the first legal director of FIRE. So, OK, so you said something in there that's intriguing, that's going to really I want to that I, I, I want to dwell on for a minute. You said that you were a student journalist and everyone was trying to shut you down. 
Greg, I thought that was impossible because I thought that campus censorship has <laughs> just really started right. since Twitter was invented. Boy, yes, my goodness. Yeah, I, I always I always have to, okay, starting stage one, free speech is not normal. <laughs> we yeah. are, people don't like it all that much at a deep level. Even uh, we've been raised, at least people from our generation, David, have been raised thinking that it's a good thing. Um, and that free speech is always in danger from somebody and it's most common enemy, um, is just plain old ordinary power. Um, just like the people in charge don't like to be criticized, uh, and individuals don't like to be criticized. So uh, we ran into a little bit less of the political correctness, even though I was, I was in, um, undergrad from 92 to 96. And the um, so there was still a little bit of those PC wars kind of coming into it. But a lot of it, frankly, was just, you know, my sorority didn't like that article that made us look bad. Um, We don't like that article that uh, criticized a friend of mine. A lot of times and people come into your office and it was this is what got me really interested in the connection between free speech and psychology is you could see the wheels turning in their heads being kind of like. Um, I know you should fire that reporter. Um, I don't know why yet. <laughs> right. And when you see that there's this really strong instinct to do this, you realize it's like, wow, it makes sense that the First Amendment has to be really broad because we're infinitely creative in shutting speech down. Right, right. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the psychology of it because I forgot to mention one of the other key parts of your bio is your co-author with Jonathan Haidt of the great book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is one of the more influential books about this present age um, and is something that, you know, a lot of your the warnings in the books, a lot of the description in the book has been, you know, proven to be quite prescient and quite and increasingly relevant. But we'll get to that. So we'll sure. get to that. So one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand is that there is a sort of a modern history. And we use a term, if you use the term PC, you're dating a con- you're dating yourself to a controversy that's sort of late 80s and moving into the 90s. If you use yep. the term woke, you're dating yourself in a controversy that's maybe mid-20-teens moving into the present age. Yep. But, but uh, one of the things I think that a lot of people don't really realize is that we did have a wave, and we'll use the term PC to describe it, we did have a wave of quote-unquote PC that was remarkable in the intensity of its censorship. Absolutely. Remarkable. Um, One of the things that I've thought of is I have thought, you know, look, when I was in law school, for example, I think HLS would have trended about once a week on Twitter (laughs) with some of the stuff that we dealt with. Mm -hmm. And, And so if you could sort of walk people through, what's the sort of the early history of PC and censorship on campus. And when I say early, I mean, some people who are older who are in the boomer generation are going to go, don't sleep on the 60s and the 70s, <laughs> but we're Gen X. So for us, early is 80s and 90s. Yeah. So if you could kind of walk people through, what is it that happened in the 80s and 90s that was so significant and, and so extraordinary? Well, uh, in order to address that, I have to take you back to the Athens of Pericles. 
<laughs> no, no, <laughs> I no. refuse. Yeah. Okay, real quick, I'm going to give my my my, my history of, of of free speech on campus. Real quick, uh, there was no um, requirement of free speech on campus. There was a very strong norm um, of having open debate and dialogue. There was also a very strong norm of not politicizing campuses. Um, so, mm-hmm. despite con- uh, despite what people think, and I'm actually going to actually jump back to the 50s, despite what people think, um, campuses have always leaned to the left, at least as far as we've been recording it. But in the 1960s, and and this is, I realized this was some, um, uh, I, I feel slightly ashamed to not fully understood this. A lot of the debates about free speech in the 60s were absolutely about speech. But for some people, it was more about how politicized can we get? And, and what right. was the contrary argument? The uh, mo- monastic view of, of higher education, mm-hmm. which I've started to really see some of the some of the benefits of at this point in my career, because if you're the institution we rely on to tell us what the world actually looks like, and it turns out the telling you what the world looks like is actually really, really hard, it turns out, um, then there's a good argument for saying, like, listen, we don't want people's political inclinations intruding on this. So there was lots of great things that came out of the free speech movement. There was a lot of cynical things that came out of the free speech movement um, of the 60s. Uh, and I always joke that there was this perfect weekend in 1977 where the old uh, censorship had died um, and the new censorship hadn't begun yet. And Star Wars had just come out. <laughs> that, that is what those days I was eight years old. I remember them so fondly. <laughs> they were splendid. But what ended up starting happening in the 80s, and I and I definitely will sound super cynical when I explain this, but I will think it's true that when you're in power, free speech starts to look like a hindrance. So when yes. people weren't uh, when, when basically the, the revolutionaries weren't really in charge in the 60s. There was kind of a sense of um, <clears throat> we're, we're the minority point of view, so free speech on our side. And certainly for, um, you know, gay rights activists, for um, uh, communists, for uh, people with, you know, for free love ideas, anarchist ideas, some ideas I have a lot of sympathy for, some some not, um, that there was a sense that, you know, free speech is just like it is in the larger society, the tool of the underdog. Uh, the, 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 the non-majority, the, um, the, the non-majoritarian point of view. But when you have this much more politicized university, much more um, homogenous in, in terms of politics, uh, you start having this kind of turn on free speech. Uh, and this, the, the person who laid the intellectual you know, uh, work for this was, of course, Herbert Marcuse. I tend to think he gets too much credit because I also right. think that this really, to a degree, came from we're in charge now, and we're seeing some of the, you know, harms of free speech. And, and I don't. In other words, human nature, human nature, like exactly. we, we run, yeah, yeah. And and the harms, you know, were, were this was at, at a stage where uh, universities were getting a lot more diverse. There was a lot of controversies over really radioactive topics like affirmative action, um, and there was a lot of culture clashing going on. Uh, and so campuses started to get really. Um, uh, there started to be a very powerful movement on these places that were, had just become known as the absolute, you know, uh, a top of free speech in the, in the entire society. They started to kind of change their mind to, to a degree. And Donald Downs, a great free speech expert that we, we both know, um, mm-hmm. uh, marks it at about 1987. Uh, he thinks that there was a, a, a noticeable shift that suddenly the sort of like hot uh, energy, you know, was around um, uh, cutting down on offensive speech, speech that might be considered either bigoted or sexist or whatever. And that's when you started having the first, you know, I, I call it like the first great age of political correctness, where you start yeah. having the uh, University of Michigan, a speech code, uh, you, you start having Wisconsin. Um, and in 1989, these things start getting knocked down in court. 
Um, so th- this first age that, that uh, when uh, David was in was at Harvard was about 1987, I'd say, to about 1995, where there was this mm-hmm. very strong professor slash administrator slash student movement that wanted to restrict speech. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that uh, was, which is kind of surprising to us sort of now, is that a lot of it was just very, very explicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah we're restricting speech. Yeah. This is a speech code. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was something that I, th- and, and then it was also accompanied by a cultural thread as well. So there was the, there were the actual codes, which went, which, which spread through universities like wildfire. I mean, yeah. even though you might have a district court decision here in Michigan, striking down a Michigan speech code, or you might have a decision out in California, wasn't it Stanford that got put in the crosshairs? Mm-hmm. Um, a professor I had at Stanford, by the way, and I got I got to Stanford in 1997. Nobody mentioned the fact that Professor Gray had written the Stanford speech code that was overturned just two years before I got there. Right, <laughs> exactly. And so, so you have this situation where these speech codes are coming on online. They are explicitly designed to restrict speech. They're spreading mm-hmm. like wildfire. Oh, but by the way, a, an important wrinkle here, though, a lot, but but also usually rationalizing it as either fighting words or more commonly harassment codes, which is why yes. w- when people get confused, it's like, why are these meanies after um, harassment codes? It's like, well, no, they actually have been kind of the weapon of choice for speech codes since the 1980s. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And. So this is happening and there's very, there's actually, uh, the proportion of litigation to speech code is very low. So there's Mm -hmm. very few cases. And so then what ends up happening is you get put into place a university system that explicitly punishes speech in such a way that it, it yields fact patterns that would be really, um, and, 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 um, I remember you used to do a speech and I don't know if you still do it. Probably not because it's, you know, been years and years and years. But I remember you used to have some of the greatest language from uh, classic speech codes, some of the most. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know if you remember any, any oh, of the absolutely. best ones. Well, oh, the, please, please share. The one that was overturned at University of Connecticut in an unpublished opinion. And I hate unpublished <laughs> opinions. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I think it, I think it was 90 or might have been 91. Um, it, there, that was inappropriately directed laughter Yes, was part of the speech code. And this got laughed at, you know, and I, I mentioned this to, you know, in, in, in speeches and people will laugh at it and I'm like, Oh, you know, be careful. And this got laughed at in, in the local papers, um, in the Hartford current and that kind of stuff. I think even the New York times, cause that's something that people also have to remember the first grade, great age of PC, when it came to the speech restrictions, left and right yeah. agreed that this was nuts. Mm-hmm. Oh, but what they was Har- what was Harvard like at the time, though? The, the oh, and by the way, just so people know, uh, David French is is my favorite conservative in the whole world. Um, I like to think of myself <laughs> as one of his favorite liberals, um, but that's just because we're we're also fellow nerds and we used to work together at Fire. Exactly, exactly. You know, Harvard was not a, an oppressive place by um, policy; it was oppressive by culture. By culture, yeah, yes. So this was. So I went to a religious college, very a very um, conservative religious school. How conservative, you ask? We had no dancing, no drinking. Um, you know, listeners have heard me tell some of these stories. RAs would literally drive through Nashville and go to nightclubs and drive through 
the parking lot to see if there were any Lipscomb parking stickers there. Whoa. And if there were, you were in real trouble. No public displays of affection, midnight curfew on the weekend, 11 o'clock. I mean, so conservative. But we, we, we had freewheeling debate when I was mm. an undergrad. I mean, we, you know, there weren't too many people who are sort of, you know, atheist or agnostic and liberal who are going to a very <laughs> sure. conservative, but, but there were some, I mean, that was the parents would send them there to convert them. Right. You know, <laughs> and so, but we, we I'm would sure have some freewheeling, freewheeling debates. And, but I was really looking forward to going to HLS and this was pre-internet of course. So it's not like I, um, can do an internet search and find out that there's these things called shout downs, you know, mm -hmm. or, uh, that, that people were incredibly aggressively abusive towards those who, uh, articulated conservative points of view at that time. And I learned about it the hard way. I learned about it by saying conservative things and either getting the, you know, the booing and the hissing in class that sort of shouting down or the messages like in my inbox, like uh, in my literal paper inbox, right. why don't you go die, you effing fascist? You know, that, that kind of stuff. Now, they weren't death threats, Greg. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were death aspirations. <laughs> it was. I, it I'm, would be delightful for you to die. Yes. I'm not going to kill you, but if something <laughs> or someone does, that would be fantastic. But... <laughs> So that was the, the culture of it. And it was so bad that there was an article written, I believe it was in GQ, maybe Esquire. Um, you can't find the full version of it online anymore. There's only like parts of it. But it was called Beirut on the Charles. Yes. And th this was back when Beirut was a nightmare place, or sort of like, you know, Fallujah at the height of the Iraq war and Mosul yep. and the height of the war against ISIS. And, and, uh, and it really shined a light on the cult culture of intolerance at the at the law school. And I'm not kidding when I say, you know, people would have, uh, Harvard would have trended. I mean, there was a tiny band of Federalist Society members. And every now and then, you know, if a Federalist Society member wrote or said something that made people upset, uh, there were some folks who would take gay porn and run off copies of it and then literally take a, a picture of the Federalist Society members from the Facebook, the literal Facebook, and uh, paste their faces onto this these porn onto this porn and put it up on walls. Hmm. Um, yeah. So that's what I mean by a culture of of uh, a cultural attack. And then talk about cancel culture. There were some individuals who really got in the crosshairs. They said some stuff that was very provocative it was very provocative but there was a massive campaign to get their clerkships you know calling judges to get their clerkships reversed and so a lot of what you see today i i saw with my own eyes then but it except except for like the gq or esquire article it just wasn't national news you had you didn't have social media i had no way of of publicizing really what was happening and so yeah that was my my baptism by fire and you know the professors who would really stand up for free speech in that circumstance were thin on the ground yeah absolutely and and yeah and knowing that that there was this kind of like first sort of great movement of this stuff it made it all the more interesting that when i was dealing with um you know a fire was founded by alan charles Coors, who's a professor at penn um and harvey silverglate who's like my dad and i adore him he's a lawyer up uh, up in cambridge um, and their experience when this was at its most intense, that this was largely a student driven thing. 
And then mm -hmm. when I started in 2001, it couldn't be further from the case. Um, these, right. The students were consistently the best on free speech issues. They got it. They got offensive music. They got offensive comedy, all this kind of stuff. And that's why it was so jarring when this changed like a lightning bolt hit in 2013. Yes, that is a great point, because when I was there, when I was there, it was definitely student driven. Like mm -hmm. the, the censorship impulse was absolutely student driven. The professors, by and large, just sort of sat back and mm -hmm. kind of watched it all unfold. Um, but yes, by the time I actually started litigating, and this is when we actually started working together, it was top down. Um, yeah. It was it was not bottom up. And that made our job, interestingly enough, I mean, I think it made our job a little bit easier yeah. to deal with the top down. Yeah, totally. The um, Yeah, no, it, it, it's an, it, it was kind of amazing watching the shift. So here's my question. So sure. th I think some listeners might, especially some younger listeners who think that a lot of the wild outrages you hear about now are new, totally new. What are, <laughs> sure. what are some of your favorite, not favorite in the sense that they were good, but yeah. most ludicrous early fire era fact patterns? Oh my goodness. Um, I wrote a book called Unlearning Liberty, of which I am still actually really quite proud. Um, which it's a great out book. Thank you. Uh, which, which came out in 2012. Um, that's all about my first uh, about 2001 to 2012 uh, on campus. And the cases are absolutely ludicrous. Um, the scariest stuff, of course, for me was because it wasn't like there was no such thing as student liberalism uh, was when students would gather up newspapers and burn them um, in a couple of yeah. cases, uh, which which is terrifying. But as far as just sheer ridiculousness, I mean, the most famous one, the one that I, I repeated to death because it, it should have been, was um, at 2007 at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Ugh, that's a mouthful. That's um, a mouthful. <laughs> the, uh, a, a, student, um, a, a student who was working his way through school as a janitor, so like working class kid, literally, um, he, uh, um, he was reading a book called Notre Dame versus the Klan. It was about the defeat of the Klan when they marched on right. Notre Dame um, in the 1920s. And uh, it and it celebrates the defeat of the Klan in, in a street battle with Notre Dame kids. You sometimes, by the way, have to remind people that Notre Dame, uh, that, that the, the KKK also hated Catholics. So people, for, for, you know, forget this sometimes. And that's why yeah. they were targeting Notre Dame. And there was a big, there was a huge street battle and the students won. And so, you know, celebrating the defeat of these racists. But this guy was found guilty of racial harassment without so much of a hearing because he was found reading, literally judging books by its cover, because there was a picture of one of the rallies that the Klan engaged in on, on, the, on the front cover. So people would see the hoods and the, and the burning crosses, and they're like, well, this is an offensive book. So this person's automatically found guilty of, of racial harassment. And it took the efforts of FIRE, the local ACLU, um, and the uh, Wall Street Journal to really get this university to back down. Well, I've, I've got one that we worked on together. Which one? You read, okay, this is one of my favorites. Because it's about the most blatant double standard in the history of double standards. We've had a lot of those, but go on. Do you remember Indian, was it Indian River Community College and the banning of the Christian group from showing Passion of the Christ? <laughs> yes, so, yes, I do. So th this community college, um, and, and, and I'll have to make sure it's, in, I can't, I'll have to make sure it's Indian I th River. I, I think, think it's Indian River. So maybe we can do a live fact check in the middle of this. But anyway, so what happens is the the in, the community college bans the Passion of the Christ, R-rated, for those who haven't seen it, R-rated, very graphic depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And we were really involved with this. And on its terms, that was a um, that was an un, that was unlawful. Uh, that was an unlawful act of censorship just on its terms. But we had this enterprising young fire employee named Charles Mitchell, mm-hmm. who I think might listen to this podcast, Hi, who Charles. found <laughs> who found that right around the time that um, the <laughs> university, it, by or the, the way, I looked college, it up. It, it, it is Indian River Community College. Yes, yes. So right about the time that it was not permitting the, the Christian group to show the passion of the Christ, it permitted a person to put on a one-woman play called Effing for Jesus. <laughs> and it wasn't censored, okay? Like yep. the, the F word was not censored. And it was one of the most blatant displays of a double standard I've ever seen, so much so that it was we, we accomplished kind of the holy grail, which was we got on one of the big three nightly news programs. Mm-hmm. We were on ABC World News Tonight about that double standard. To this day, that's one of my absolute favorite cases, mm-hmm. just as oh, far as like demonstrating how, how crazy some of these codes and, and acts of censorship were. Oh, and take, take a minor, minor detour. I, I read a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea, and I'm doing a series where I'm trying to update um, the, uh, the, the facts, the stuff that we found in Coddling the American Mind. But this goes right to the error you're talking about, David. I don't know if you re- remember this, but um, oh, may, uh, actually, I don't think you were still at fire at the time. Um, there was Columbia Teachers College um, had a social justice requirement um, that, that basically everybody to graduate from uh, the school where they'd then go on to teach K through 12 um, had since at least 2003 had a policy saying that we will judge you on your commitment to social justice obvious political litmus test. And then when yes. we, we look into it, we find out that actually this is the accrediting body for the, the, like half the schools of education in the country had had this since at least 2002. So with yes. Casey Johnson, we, we got this defeated, but we still had it at Teachers College. I wrote a piece about this in the New York Post. Easy to explain to regular people. They get this is this is um, uh, a, a litmus test. I actually, and then I wrote a, a a kind of like slower, more thoughtful, kind of like more careful piece, and I got it accepted to the New York Times in two thousand six. And but I got it accepted by a junior editor. Um, and when his editor came back from vacation, she told me, oh, we're not going to be able to publish this probably for at least nine months. And it was definitely one of these <laughs> things where it's like, oh, really? Like, where basically she didn't want to tell me that, that they were just now rejecting it because they'd already accepted it. Um, and I've never actually told that story before, um, until yeah. writing Eternally Radical Idea. And the, and so eventually I wrote this piece and it came out in the Chronicle Higher Education. It's still a piece I'm extremely proud of, um. And but I think about it, like, what if the mainstream media had taken this issue more seriously 15 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. No, I one of the things and you and I know this well, because we spent hours and hours working on this, both when I was at fire, when we were working together at fire and when we kept working together after I left fire, when I went to ADF and and uh, started the Center for Academic Freedom. And we were constantly working together on litigation. Oh, yeah. And. And you know, you and I both know that one of the big challenges, this is all pre-social media, was getting the media to pay attention to any yeah. of this. Yeah. And, you know, often you could get local news to pay attention. Um, and sometimes that was enough. I mean, you know, under the old saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. But now, you know, it's, it's as if, you know, any incident anywhere in the country on campus is national news almost instantly. Mm-hmm. And we would be working with lurid fact patterns. 
Yeah. You know, I had a case, we had a case at ADF where, um, university employees snatched up a whole print run of a paper, <laughs> the whole print run and just dumped it by a dumpster. Yep. Surprisingly common. Um, yeah. We had a case, uh, we had a case, one of the most egregious ever. Um, and you might remember this uh, name, Emily Brooker. This was, oh, a of course, person yeah, she, she, she's got a big part in, in unlearning Liberty. It's a horrifying case. A terrible. She she refused to write a letter to her legislators in support in support of a position that she didn't agree with. So this was a classic example of trying to compel speech. Now you can in a in a, an assignment you can say, for my benefit as a professor, take a position you don't yep. agree with. That's normal. But this was actually right the legislature of the state. She said no. They brought her up on charges that were you know, a basically, essentially an insufficient commitment to diversity mm -hmm. held like a star chamber proceeding where she was not allowed to have anyone in the room supporting her, not even her own mother. They questioned her about her faith. They questioned her about her religious beliefs and then implemented a, a found her guilty and then implemented a plan where she had to essentially change her beliefs to graduate. Explicitly. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely amazing. But David, there there is one exception though to the idea that a, a lot of cases that are not nearly as bad as the ones we dealt with in 2007 will get national attention now in a way that they didn't used to. But there is an exception: yes. apolitical cases, um, ones oh. ones where it's just the university throwing its weight around. Um, there are some exceptions here too, but um, it is really frustrating to go on like a program where people are like, "Well, you never hear about these th these cases," you know. Um, it, well, for one thing, you know, hearing people say you never hear of people getting in trouble, you know, if they're on the left, you know, you know, and it's like we have hundreds of cases like that, that that we're trying to tell people to pay attention to. But the ones that people really don't pay attention to are when universities are just doing the old fashioned Dean Wormer stuff, just being kind of like, you right. cannot make fun of my university here. They just don't get the same kind of juice that the culture war ones do. I mean, if I remember correctly, didn't you guys have a years long fight? with a university over a student who protested a parking garage. The star of Unlearning Liberty is a student named Hayden Barnes. Um, he was He's an environmentalist student, um, and he he protested a, a parking garage program. He This is such a sad case. Like, you really got to read the book to do this justice because yeah. um, it, it, it's really ridiculous. This is a this is a president who was in love with the with his legacy, the parking garage, which he'd said <laughs> Probably his legacy to Valsdossa State University in Georgia was going to be his parking garage. Um, he and there was a student who was constantly putting up flyers, being critical of this from an environmentalist standpoint. And uh, he was that student was brought into um, his office and dressed down for like an hour and a half. Um, the student goes back and he makes a, a collage, for goodness sakes, on Facebook uh, when it was relatively new. Um, and he uh, and he referred to it as the Valdosta, the President Zachary Memorial Parking Garage, making a joke about him saying this was his legacy. Right. So what do you think the president said? <sighs> a threat. <laughs> exactly. Since memorials usually happen when people are dead, you're threatening to kill me. And meanwhile, this guy, like if you could, you should see the video we did on this guy. He's a hippie. He's a Shambhala Buddhist. He's a um, believer in non-aggression. He's a decorated EMT, for goodness sakes. Um, like he, he's like the, the picture of a saint who's just complaining. And so like it was really clear from the fact pattern. This president was not concerned about his safety. And oh, and David, what's really funny about the litigation is what we discovered was literally everybody around him was saying, 
no, no, you, sh- you can't fire him. No, 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 you, you, sh- you should drop this. Like, and, and he yeah. actually had the temerity to say, well, I did consult with my, uh, my lawyers before deciding to expel him for this, uh, the, this uh, Facebook flyer. Um, you know? <laughs> and what he left out was he consulted with his lawyers and they said, don't do this. it was a year years long battle Uh, he was expelled flat out we barely found out about this case we got bob corn revere one of the best first amendment attorneys out there um besides david of course uh to to litigate this for years and ended up being a nearly million dollar settlement amazing just amazing yeah so okay so let's move from this sort of dark time (laughs) <laughs> there was a litig- there was a litigation counteroffensive and fire was at the center of it um and it was a, you you uh, fire started a speech codes litigation project and so all of a sudden what's happens is that rather than being a district court here and a district court there that rules against the speech code it's another district court and another district court and then a court of appeals and then yep. another, you know and so by 2014 2015 2016 the tide, the speech code tide has turned. Yes. At that point. But then, Greg, because yeah. the battle for free speech is never, never over. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what's what was your analysis and diagnosis of what begins to happen around 2014, 2015? Well, it, it really started at the very end of 2013. Um, and it was really stark. Um, suddenly the students themselves were coming out against free speech, kind of like the conservative stereotype that I'd run into my entire career of the students demanding new speech codes, which I really hadn't run into, at least in any meaningful degree, um, suddenly had come true and with 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 sauce, like basically like it wasn't just they're demanding extra speech codes. They're demanding right. speakers get disinvited at, at, at a um, higher rate than I'd ever seen before. They were and most interestingly, and what led to my work with with um, uh, uh, with Jonathan Haidt, was that they were medicalizing it. They weren't just saying mm-hmm. that um, uh, I hate this guy and this guy should not be on campus. They were saying it will literally be medically harmful for this person to be on campus, usually not for me, but for this other unidentified person over there or for the the generalized kind of marginalized, uh, a, a general appeal to sort of like people will be harmed by this. And it, and it wasn't subtle. It was very sudden. Right. And it was 2013, 2014. And coddling the American mind, the whole book... Um, is about what was so different about those students. But before I get to this, David, I, I got asked by reason to write something about this. And I realized that there's all those things that you say to like within fire, within staff that you you forget you no one else has ever heard before. The, the, the kids who were hitting the, the Generation Z, like the kids who were born in 1995, 1996, are, are what the real difference is. Basically, millennials were mm-hmm. actually pretty good on free speech, actually really good on free speech. Um, it was right. Generation Z, 96 or after. Um, and Here's what's amazing to think about. A lot of these kids, particularly given the same kind of families, go tend to go to these fancy schools, you know, like the the, the Harvardies. We all met these people. Yeah. We, we, we weren't them, but like they have multi-generations going to these schools. Some of these kids are literally the children of the kids of the kids who are around in the first grade age of PC. Um, literally yes. the children of the people who grew up thinking that free speech was the problem. Yes, that is. I'm so glad you said that. That is something that um, I, you know, I've been thinking about for a while, this is, and, and I remember thinking, what are, what are going to be the knock on effects as I was seeing the people around me at this, in this, you know, uh, this institution that is sort of by reputation trains America's leaders yeah. and America's leaders that were, who are my peers 
many of them loathed free speech. Yeah. What were going to be the knock-on effects of that? And one of them is raising kids who don't care about free speech. Yeah, or think or think it's part of the problem. And and it, and it's yeah. amazing. I I go on campuses and I go to high schools now as much as well, being a pre-pandemic and I'm going to be going again. And what I have to explain is, okay, let's look at history and the role of free speech. You know, what? how do we deal with dissenters? Uh, we make them drink hemlock. We crucify them. We kick them out of our community. We burn them at the stake. And that this whole kind of idea that free speech is the argument of the powerful. It's like, uh, you, you know what has protected the wealth, the, the rich and powerful throughout human history? Being rich and powerful <laughs> has protected yeah. them. They're, they're yeah. the people that the kings go to ask for money, and that's where we get parliaments from because the rich and powerful are rich and powerful. Then when you get to democracy, you're talking about anybody who has 51% of the vote or 50 plus percent of the vote um, is, is in charge. Uh, the only thing you need free speech as a, as a concept, let alone a law, is to protect minority viewpoints because the vote protects it otherwise and power protects it otherwise. Um, and this is, we live in such a skewed environment on campus that they could actually come to convince a generation that free speech is the enemy of minority viewpoints because this, they're not, well, universities themselves are not willing to admit that they are wealthy and powerful. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So now here, here's where it gets interesting to me. So this is where we're going to move into the Has culture of free yet? speech. Oh, well, no. I mean, this, we're, we're just <laughs> kicking it up a notch. No, I, 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 it's, all, it's all been great. Remember, this is the platonic form of the free speech conversation. Yes. So here's where it kicks up a notch, or where it makes it, it gets really interesting and fascinating, and we're going to dive into the culture of free speech and cancel culture. So unlike the kids who are advocating for speech codes or speech restrictions in the, in the 80s and the early 90s, the Gen Zers are running into a free, a citadel of free speech jurisprudence mm -hmm. that there is a, that um, I, I would say it's pretty, I, I think it's pretty fair to say, and I've heard a lot of consensus about this, that as far as the state of free speech jurisprudence in the United States right now, it is probably stronger than it's ever been in American history. That free speech is more robustly protected. Yeah, I think that's safe to say that. So all these kids are saying, universities, you need to censor. The universities are saying, we tried that 20 years ago and we lost. Mm -hmm. But the problem is people <laughs> respond to peer pressure. People respond to cultural pressure. And this is where, you know, our, you have been raising this alarm for several years, which is you can protect the law of free speech, but if mm -hmm. the culture surrounding speech gets so intimidating, the self-censorship will in essence, do the work of what speech codes would have done anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That the self-censorship and the intimidation becomes a, a, a real problem. Um, yep. And there's been some pushback uh, to you and to me as we've made that argument over the years and sort of, you know, state your case, Greg. <laughs> the, uh, the this is the old um, free speech culture versus free speech law argument, and mm -hmm. um, we're we're thinking of a person in particular who we both love and admire. Uh, Ken White uh, is one of the people who has come out saying there is no such thing as free speech culture, or free speech culture is just something a convenient argument that usually right wingers come up with. Um, and I he thinks that people are and basically what I think is going on there is simply he's really frustrated with people who are hypocritical about free speech. Like he, he has yeah. a lot of focus on uh, free speech hypocrisy. 
my attitude about it is just completely different in that I'm kind of, you know, I'm critical of humans as they are, but I do accept them to a degree and I expect mm -hmm. them to be free speech hypocrites. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and so, so if I can ever have them on my side, I'm like, thanks for being on my side on this one. Um, I'm going to be mad at you when you're not later, but let's see. Um, you know, but like, I, I, there, there's a certain amount of like Russian kind of like, oh, people are people kind of thing. Um, but the, the free, but the idea that there's no such thing of free speech culture, like uh, Ken likes to call this an incoherent argument that, there, that there's a free speech culture. I think the idea that there's no such thing as a free speech culture is an incoherent argument because it, it does give that idea of well, Plato's getting a lot of play today. The idea that sort of like free speech law was somehow handed down from the platonic form of truth um, in a culture that wasn't familiar with it or had any value in it. That doesn't make any right. sense. Um, free speech culture preceded the First Amendment. Um, it kept free speech from completely dying, um, uh, despite events for slaveholders to get rid of it in the early 19th century. Um, and it was only when the free speech culture really started to break down around World War I um, that you had this, uh, and a little bit before that, where you had the very first free speech league, that we had to kind of fall back on the First Amendment, which up until 1925, I'm sure some of your listeners know this, but a lot of people don't, up until 1925, the First Amendment had very little legal power um, uh, in right. the country. It was only when it was interpreted uh, through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment that it started having power. And that's where we end up with the 20th century, sort of the free speech, uh, the free speech century. But when it comes to, so what we're kind of taking for granted is the environment that David and I grew up with, and, and Ken as well, wasn't just a, a, a place where the free speech law was very strong. We also had a very strong free speech culture. And what does that look like? Um, a very strong idea that everyone's entitled to the, your own opinion. Not everything is your business. Um, every, you know, one man's uh, one, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric, which is a quote from you know uh, from the Supreme Court. Um, that in 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 court in, in the court of public opinion and in, and in the Supreme Court, there's this very strong kind of what I call deep pluralism. This idea that essentially you know different strokes for different folks kind of idea. You know, essentially yeah. that we are different and people from different groups are going to communicate in different ways. Some that might curl our toes, and it's not on me to shut them shut them down. So free speech culture, you know, it's reflected in idioms like walk a mile in a man's shoes or, you know, to each their own or not my cup of tea, all these kind of things mm -hmm. that we, or for that matter, the simplest one, it's a free country. These are idioms right. that were pretty common when we were kids and idioms tend to tend to sort of reflect the nature of a, um, uh, the nature of some aspects of culture. Um, these, these aspects of free speech culture, uh, which I actually think are quite sophisticated for a pluralistic society, have given way to what I think of as a wildly simplistic good versus evil sort of narrative um, yeah. that's coming out of, uh, of K through 12 and higher education. You know, um, first, I can tell you've not given this a bit of thought. Um, <laughs> that was uh, uh, just totally, obviously, never really considered any of this. No, I, uh, so, okay. I think that that's a fantastic, that you and I are, are very aligned and not to pick on our dear friend, Ken, because he really, I, we do love him. Ken, Ken and he's hilarious. Boy. My God, he's, that guy's got oh, timing. He, one of the first people I met at law school, we we're classmates. Oh. Uh, one of my first friends, we, we pledged to go bald with dignity together. Um, <laughs> that but like not, not to pick and, on and, him too much. Oh, but also, you know, while we're saying nice things about Ken, also has been so great about helping people know about um, uh, sort of normalizing the fact that people have issues with depression and anxiety. I, yeah. I tried to do that a little bit in, in, in my work as well, but I was following in Ken's footsteps. And, you know, so there's a lot of people who would say, and, and this, get, this gets, now we're going to get to the tough parts yeah. of the cancel culture conversation. 
Oh yeah, defining it. What is the difference between cancel culture and accountability? Mm. And what is the difference between and how isn't an a pushback against cancel culture in many ways a pushback against another person's exercise of their rights of free speech and free association? So mm-hmm. to take a recent case, the the uh, firing of the young uh, the newly named editor at Teen Vogue, yeah. which lit up the internet. So here's somebody. Um, she was 17 years old. She had some racist tweets when she was 17 years old. She apologized for him. She apologized for him. But in the aftermath of the Atlanta shooting, there was internal staff pushback. And, you know, Teen Vogue says no, bye. And a a lot of folks, me included, thought that that was excessive. But at the same time, I acknowledge that Teen Vogue has a right to, it can do it. It can do it. And so what you're dealing with in these conversations often isn't must or must not. It's should or should not. Should you is yep. what is the obligation of a of an employer of a big tech company to um, how should it use its right of free speech and free association? Should it use its right of free speech and free association to foster and protect a marketplace of ideas, or should it use its right of free speech and free free association to restrict? Mm-hmm. the marketplace of ideas and to punish speech that it doesn't like. Um, where are you drawing that line? Because I think both of us would say, for example, that a company isn't required. And, and in fact, it's not all it's, there are circumstances where uh, accountability is not in fact a threat to free speech, or it is mm-hmm. not in fact, quote unquote, cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote, for example, and we might disagree on this, but I, I wrote, for example, that I had, much less problem with ABC dealing with Roseanne mm-hmm. than I had a problem with Google dealing with James Damore or the NFL and sort of the 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 blacklisting of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. And the and where I drew those lines is I thought both Damore and Kaepernick were engaged in good faith dissent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Roseanne Barr, a person who'd been given chance after chance after chance, was engaging in bad faith trolling and companies can and should make those kinds of distinctions. So that's, yeah. that's kind of where I am. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, it's funny. I, if I find this whole debate kind of funny because first of all, I feel like I'm constantly to use a term getting gaslit for <laughs> watching something that I see in action every freaking day. Um, and yeah. have for my entire career, people getting, you know, uh, uh canceled, you know, for lack of a better word, um, for, for what they say and being told this isn't really happening. And, and it just, yeah. it, it drives me nuts. And then of course we, we were among some of the first people to notice this back in 2014. Um, and I, I was writing for the Huffington Post at the time, um, that this was happening. Um, and now the sort of push seems to be, and I just, I, I really want to get this, this one point out about the term cancel culture. Um, mm-hmm. cancel, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give a modest defense of the term cancel culture, um, which is, uh, right now there seems to be an attempt to stigmatize the use of that term because it is absolutely misused by conservatives in a lot of cases, you know, like saying that, that, um, yeah. impeachment is an example of cancel culture is like, Oh God, don't, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> no, but what, but what's going on is, is exactly kind of what happened with political correctness. Um, that essentially nobody was able to disprove that it was a problem because it obviously was a problem. Nobody was able to um, convince people who were around at the time that political correctness was, you know, good. So they just stigmatized the term 
um, to a point where people where some reviews of Unlearning Liberty were just about my use of political correctness, uh, the term political correctness or the phrase political correctness runs amok. Uh, John Carl Wilson wrote, wrote a, crit a critique of, of my article um, that included uh, that I had used that. And I'm like, and I looked at it in context. I was always said, it was always in a situation where like, this was not your political correctness run amok situation, but nonetheless, that, well, that was a mark against me. So the whole kind of like way of stigmatizing certain ways of referring to stuff is something that is a way to not actually have the argument at all in any substantive way, but just, just push that argument entirely away through a kind of collective sneering. So cancel culture was something that I, that, that um, I was seeing this happening on campus uh, and uh, John and I, uh, at Height, in our, in our book, we call it um, uh, cancel, uh, campus call-out culture and high school call-out culture, which is also pretty well documented. And then yeah. when it got a name, can, uh, uh, cancel culture, uh, the, I, we suddenly have a situation where I'd say probably 70% of the entire population of the country, Republicans agree with us, and a good chunk of, of people who are more, uh, more ma mainstream Democrat think that this is a problem. But now we're just stigmatizing the term partially because people are, are, are really misusing it. But it's good yeah. because cancel for one, it's not, it, it's sufficiently um, uh, hazy to, to say this can be getting someone fired, getting someone um, uh, expelled, getting someone just kicked out of, of, of polite society. But the culture part is the and and, here, and here's where I'm bringing it back to what you what you asked originally. The culture part is the one that I just get so sort of uh, frustrated when lawyers argue with me about this because when you know <laughs> when, when Ken says kind of like well what give me a precise definition of it and it's kind of like this is a cultural issue. <laughs> this is why we right. this is why this won't be solved by law. Cultural issues are all about thumbs on the scale, all about weighing. You don't want those always in law because it gives you know a power infinite discretion, but in cultural issues it really is always going to be a little bit ad hoc. But when I try to say it in its simplest form around 2013, 2014, 2015, there were a lot more successful attempts to ruin people's lives over yeah. things they said prior to any any time previously. And it's partially because those used to just be letters to the editor that people ignored. Now, every single letter to the editor person can get together and say, I'm going to ruin this person's life. And then it actually turns out that process uh, for a lot of people felt kind of empowering and fun. Yes. So so something did change. Um, and But in the culture wars, people are always... they. All they care about is is the right or left correct on this, which, of course, people like me and you find just utterly tedious. Yes. So I love so I, you know, uh, because because I have that lawyer um, knee jerk inclination to sort of craft rules. Yeah. <laughs> um, I the best definition and it's not perfect, but the best definition I've heard of cancel culture comes from our mutual friend, Nick Christakis. Yeah. Um, Who's also who's somebody who was a was a a victim of uh, an early era. Well, early era. What was it? Twenty fifteen. I was going to videotape that people. Like, I know uh, you were. Yeah, and that and that was what. And I was there coincidentally to give a speech on free speech at, at Yale when all of that stuff happened. And it was. And Nicholas Christakis, to be clear, he's not just a genius. He's one of the kindest, most thoughtful people you ever met in your life. And as far as actually trying to do things to help people in the real world, as in like volunteering and, and um, you know, uh, activism and that kind of stuff, uh, Erica and Nicholas Christakis, you're not going to find, you know, people who were more on the side of the very students who are like yelling in their face in, in the Silliman Quad. And we'll, we'll put that famous YouTube uh, that you shot in the uh, in the show notes. but. Um, 
Nick Christakis, here's it, and I agree with you. He's a gem of a human being. I don't know of his wife as well, but everything oh, I know lo- about her, she's you'd love Erica. She, she's such a, she's she's brilliant and she's a total sweetheart. And yeah, you 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 guys would really get along. I, I would I would love back. You know, when I've got one one shot out of two, so I'm I'm looking forward to the day where we're back to normal. I'd love to break bread with them sometime. But here, oh, I just got one too. I got my, I got mine first yesterday. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Are you a little dizzy? I was a little dizzy for about four days. I just felt tired, um, but okay. I, there's lots of reason for me to feel tired lately. <laughs> <laughs> hey, amen to that. So here's his definition of cancel culture. One, forming a mob. Mm-hmm. Two, to seek to get someone fired or disproportionately punished. Mm-hmm. For three, statements within the Overton window. Mm-hmm. Extra points if mob willfully misinterprets original statement or narrows the window be- beyond all recognition. <laughs> and and I, I, I here's why I like that. And and I was I was writing about this recently, and because the Overton window, for those who don't know, refers it's a term that refers to those ideas or policies that are within the broad, broadly defined mainstream of political or cultural opinion. And and I think the reason why cancel culture has alarmed so many Americans is not because, say, Holocaust deniers face public shame or white supremacists aren't uh, easily hired for network TV. It's because even normal political, normal range political disagreement can and does generate extreme and punitive backlash and or long past mistakes that you acknowledge as mistakes. And have uh, and have unequivocally el- illustrated in your professional life that you're not your worst tweet. That those things can also just sort of define you forever. Mm-hmm. And and this is where this is like the David Shore, you know, tweeting out in, entirely innocuously that you know, look, I mean, peaceful protest tends to be more effective at changing hearts and minds than violent protest. How and dare he? How dare? And he's gone or a random, you know municipal worker who's seen giving an okay sign, which only a tiniest number of people identify as a white supremacist sign, but is generally people identify as the okay sign and then gone. You know, that these these kinds of things that that's what we're talking about. And I I just look, Josh Hawley is not a victim of cancel culture. <laughs> but can we say that somebody who's fired for making an okay sign is or that yeah. somebody who says that a that um, uh, riots reduced democratic vote share <laughs> is? I, I mean, so that it, at some point I agree with you, Greg. It's like we're being gaslit here, but then there's another kind of gaslighting that occurs, which is then everything becomes cancel culture when it is somebody's critiquing my team uh, or my favorite politician, or they're subject to strong criticism, and so the 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 term has just been weaponized in the same way the term PC was weaponized or the term woke is weaponized. But I think there is something real. And I think Nick Christock has put his finger on it as, as in definitional terms as, as well as anybody. All right, listeners, right after I said that I thought that Nick Christock has had a great definition, went through it. Um, I teed up Greg and then I saw on our technology that Greg was talking. You could see it, the squiggly lines indicating audio life, and yet we could not hear it. And so we spent 
endless minutes troubleshooting. And if you hear a change in the sound of our voice, it's because we've changed recording platforms. We're now recording on Zoom. Mm -hmm. But I apologize if it's a little lower quality. David, you know what happened, right? Uh, no. Our oh, we were censored wings. by big tech. Our wax and wings, David. Uh, th th it was our hubris to say this was the platonic form of the podcast, and we've been cast down from heaven for it. <laughs> that you nailed it. I think you nailed <laughs> it's, it. It's the easiest explanation. Yeah, that, it's Occam's razor, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I had said I had said uh, what I said about Christakis. You had something to say about Jonathan Rauch. Yes. So go. So defining cancel culture, um, and my, I have a definition of it too, which is just very simply a, a, an uptick uh, driven by virtual technologies to ruin people's lives for things that they said. Um, and mm. I, I put it slightly better than that. So I have a very primitive definition of it. Um, but uh, so, but Rausch being the genius that he is, and he's coming out with a book, by the way, called Constitution of Knowledge, which is coming yep. out in June, which I'm getting behind like it's my own book. Um, if only because I'm so very jealous, having read it, of how good it is. Um, it, it, <laughs> he, he's good. He's, he's so good. Really good. Uh, and it takes on both sort of epistemology in the Trump world and on campus. So it's going to, it's got something for everyone to hate. But if you actually love free speech more than other things, it's possibly one of the best books ever written. Um, so, but yeah, so he came up with the, this checklist for, uh, cancel culture. Um, and he said you, and of course being complex, it, 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 it's, if you can take two of any of these seven categories, one is the goal of the critic, uh, critics punitive to get you like punished, to get you canceled, mm -hmm. to get you, um, uh, to get you fired, to get you out of, uh, uh to get you out of a position. Um, is this just, uh, the next one is, is this deplatforming? Um, are they trying to get you, you know, off of NBC news? Is the effort organized? Are there secondary boycotts where essentially they're trying to, you know, ruin your career in some other ways? Is there moral grandstanding and are the allegations more truthiness than truth? Um, essentially, mm. are they distorting your argument? And basically his argument that is, if you have any two of those seven, then it's, uh, it's probably cancel culture. Interesting. I like that. I like that. That's it's a probably a little bit more expansive definition than the Christakis definition. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's I think that's solid. I, the, I like that a lot. The one that confused my definition is I I placed mine a lot on the shift in technology. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I saw what happened in the New York Times with someone uh, with, a, with a reporter accurately translating what a student had said, but then using an epithet in explaining what the student what, what sorry what what he, he, they were in South America I think um, yeah and he translated uh, a epithet that someone else had said to somebody um, and just translating it and using the word. Um, was considered enough to get, to get him fired. And that had nothing to do with virtual whatsoever, but it does that feel like the phenomenon we're getting at, this hyper-punitive for yeah. you know, otherwise innocuous things. Uh, it made me rethink my definition on that one. Well, you know, and it might have included some virtual include uh, when you're talking about like internal Slack channels. Sure. <laughs> which, um, you know, there's a very interesting phenomenon I think that's happening. And, and my friend from National Review, Michael Brendan Darty, referred to this recently where online in some of the online anger, what you can see is evidence of micro channel radicalization. In other <laughs> words, people are on the same group me or the same Slack or the same group text message where they're getting, they're riling each other up. Yeah. And then it's spilling out into the sort of the common square of Twitter. And once you realize that's happening, it's hard to kind of miss the signs of it. Yep. Um, 
and you know, one of the things that you'll often see is, so for example, there are certain individuals that for whatever reason seem to be the subject of particular anger yes. that's completely out of proportion to anything they've ever said or done or written. Barry Weiss. And I'm thinking, Barry Weiss is a great example of that. Jesse Single yep. is an, an example of that. There are people on the right who are examples of that. And um, like and I you, think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of I, I was thinking maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know why, why in do my people case, hate some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Like <laughs> you and Barry Weiss. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, you know, I know in my case that people have shared with me sort of DMs or text messages about me that are like completely unrecognizable to who I am mm -hmm. um, and that, that have been passed around and shared. And so, you know, a lot of this that's happening is you're sort of having these micro channels that are radicalizing people and it's spilling over into the, the larger channel of Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or whatever, and is creating a real um, crap storm yeah. seemingly out of nowhere, just out of nowhere. And the other issue, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, all right, big, and then we'll move into the most important conversation briefly because we're, <laughs> yes. we're running a little long, but the, uh, which is of course the Snyder cut, Absolutely. Um, but okay. Section 230 regulation. <laughs> sure. <laughs> In 15 seconds, uh, no, um, big tech section 230 um, where are you standing on, on this issue more broadly? Um, is 230 in need of reform in your view? Where, where is Greg Lukianoff, free speech defender, mm -hmm. on the quote-unquote big tech question? Yeah, sure. Um, not easy, uh, not, yeah. uh, basically, because now you have an international situation where, um, you know, Europe, uh, the EU is trying to uh, to figure out every way to make, um, you know, the Silicon Valley's life more difficult. You have a lot of players. It, it's a very complicated situation. I do, however, think that the debate about 230 and that conservatives wanting to end 230 is almost like, adorable because it's like you will get shut down so quickly without 230 yeah. you don't even and, and they don't get it they don't they, they think yeah. 230 is the problem and i'm like no 230 is one of the reasons why anybody's allowed to say anything controversial at all if they if, yeah. if these companies have no incentive for keeping you up they won't keep you up for goodness sakes so you know well, here here's here's my um unsatisfactory opinion uh but i also think it is also true uh and my my thinking on this i'm working on the preface for the new edition of coddling of the american mind and the book that's probably affected my thinking the most since then is martin gurry's revolt of the public uh really good book um he's a he's a former i believe cia analyst and he takes the international point of view which i usually try to see things from as well but um, talks about there being a phase shift as of social media um, and, and starting, and you saw its international implications with the Arab Spring in 2011, but also the indignados in Spain, also mm -hmm. uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street in the US um, and similar movements in Israel. And he makes the point, um, and, and I, I wrote a, a, a post, and I talk about this as, as Gurry's negation and Gurry's nihilism, that essentially, like, if you hold up any institution uh, fact or individual to 50 critics, um, that individual uh, fact or, um, or idea might come out stronger or might come out with, you know, constructive criticism. If you hold it up to 
millions and millions of people at such a level at which there's no with, with no rules as to how you do it literally no institution no person or no idea can hold up and what does that mm. mean that means that uh the power at the moment is only negative not not in the judgmental sense but that it can right. tear things down and there are a lot of things that deserve tearing down you know like tearing down a lot of the arab spring attacks you know you know they they were good they they, they tore down uh, but they weren't able to replace it with anything because yep. right now this technology can destroy um, but it can't build. So this is this is uh, Gurry's nihilism, as I, as, I, as I call it. Um, his nihilism is basically saying that if your plan is to, for example, defund the police, but you don't have anything deeper than that, that's effectively mm-hmm. nihilism. Like essentially, you you are saying that j- just tear it down, and I don't care what what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we are in a kind of uh, epistemic anarchical period, just completely nuts. Um, mm-hmm. it, and that we're looking for easy solutions to one of the biggest sort of knowledge crises we've had since the printing press, probably the biggest knowledge crisis that we have since since, since the printing press. So some of this stuff is going to, there's no easy solution to it because we don't know who to trust. Uh, we yep. have an institution that can tear things down. It can't build things. We don't, uh, we, we've abandoned rules about ad hominem attacks. We've abandoned rules about how you can, can conduct discourse. And we're in such an insane period that the, uh, that what exactly is going to bring us out of it is it's too early to say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's a, I think that's very well stated and, and even bleaker than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I was really good. You should, you should read him. He, he, he's, he's a sweetheart of a guy too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we, we are dealing with right now is this kind of a paradox where especially on the conservative side of the aisle, the world is more, there is, there are more opportunities if you're a conservative to get your message to more people than at any point in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, conservatives feel more like their, their speech rights are hanging by a thread than any time I remember in my adult lifetime. And they're not entirely wrong. I mean, like the, the, the thing that happened on Amazon with them actually you know, yeah. removing books, like, you know, I, I, I definitely have, you know, friends, uh, but basically my whole social circle is, is all left-leaning. Um, and, you know, they, they want to kind of dismiss this stuff. And it, it seems like by, by, by increment, like the, you know, parlor going entirely off, you know, just being immediately taken entirely offline. That's something I wouldn't have predicted even two years ago. Yeah. No, I think in the parlor situation, when you dive into those facts, uh-huh. There was some really interesting, there was a history there with Amazon where Parler has, was demonstrating that to Amazon, it was completely incapable of dealing with pro- problems that Amazon identified before they pulled the plug. So it was a, it, the fact pattern there was more damaging for Parler than sort of the initial reports. But, you know, as I said, when I was talking about when Twitter yanked Trump, I mean, I supported that under the specific circumstances of the moment. Yeah. But I knew this is hard stuff, you know, yeah. in the Amazon, in the Amazon situation with Ryan Anderson, one, I thought the Amazon, the decision of Amazon to pull the book was bad and dangerous. Um, and two, at the same time, the solution to it, aside from the ability to try to persuade Amazon to not do this, the solution set, a satisfactory solution set is really tough to locate. Totally. Yeah. Well, and this is something that you and I also agree on, and, and I'm downright obnoxious about it. When, when I travel to other countries to talk about, um, there's kind of like an etiquette that you never say that like anything American is better than anything else. 
And right. I go, you know, I go to Europe and I talk about, um, actually, I think we understand free speech better than you do. Um, and I think that our jurisprudence is the best thought out theory of how do you have free speech in the real world yeah. um, that, that has yet been accomplished. And so I, and both of us think that even though, um, you know, tech companies don't have to abide by the First mm-hmm. Amendment, there are a lot of um, very sensible principles within First Amendment yes. jurisprudence that, are, that, that, can, that can stop you from going into the void of just doing it ad hoc. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's something I've been arguing for a long time. And no, look, for example, you know, I, I understand the limits of the argument in the sense that, for example, you know, most forms of pornography are protected under the First Amendment. But mm-hmm. if Facebook wants to be a family platform, I don't have a problem with Facebook. And in fact, you know, think that Facebook should not have pornography on it or Instagram or whatever. But we have free speech principles that have been applied even in circumstances where we have decency protections like in broadcast, mm-hmm. um, you know, broadcast TV. And a lot of these protections center around a kind of a default to viewpoint neutrality. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that, that, and this is something that I have told tech executives, is that you guys are walking into the same problem that all the smartest people in academia couldn't solve in the 90s when they were drafting speech codes. Mm-hmm. And that is, you're trying to have all the benefits of free speech and none of the blo- and none of the downsides. And Good luck with that. Yeah, that's with that, that. That's well said. And it's kind of funny. One of, one of the things I loved about teaching uh, First Amendment, um, I actually don't love the process of teaching, but um, getting to revisit all the old cases, particularly now that I have more a little bit more of a psychological viewpoint, is seeing like how smart the Supreme Court and how the jurisprudence is for incorporating things that would be deal breakers. So, for example, like the Ginsburg case that says it's not a First Amendment violation to tell um, newsstands that they have to put the nudie mags, um, you know, in, in the back shelf, uh, that New York right. could actually have that law. And it's basically sort of, uh, there's a lot of common sense baked into the way we think about these things. And then of course you have people who will argue, it's like, well, um, uh, it needs to be a balancing test. And I'm like, it is a balancing test. It's called strict scrutiny. Um, but mm-hmm. it only, it basically, and this is the, so to be, to, to nerd out a little bit, um, the example I give of when I think strict scrutiny is met on, on, in fiction is Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of, a lot of rules go out the window if, if you, if you're like five, 50,000 people away from complete annihilation. Um, <laughs> right. but strict scrutiny is a balancing test. It just is the thumb is very much on, on, on one side uh, of the uh, of the equation, and it should be. Yeah, exactly. Okay, you've been super generous with your time, especially considering that we have worked through multiple tech issues. <laughs> They're my fault, uh, though. It's it's my magnetic field. <laughs> so let's let's end on a such a very high note. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of online free speech, mm-hmm. um, the the campaign. This is. Well, this is how is isn't this a uh, an exception to the the nihilism theory that <laughs> this we did build something, Greg? The <laughs> the release the Snyder Cut online campaign uh-huh. did build something great. Yeah. Um, the Snyder Cut, okay, for listeners who don't know what it is, this is the <laughs> original vision of the Justice League movie mm-hmm. as envisioned by the original director to it, uh, Zack Snyder, who uh, before he had to leave the um, filming of the original Justice League and was replaced by Joss Whedon. This is what he wanted the movie to be. The actual movie that came out in 2017 was a hybrid version of a Snyder vision and a Whedon vision with more Whedon than Snyder. And it was 
a mess. I mean, I believe there's never been a bad superhero movie, so I mildly enjoyed it. <laughs> but it was a mess compared to what it should have been. Mm-hmm. And last, has it been? Yeah, last week, today. Wow. One week ago today. It's a different time. We were Snyder so foolish Cut. back then. I know. The Snyder Cut released, and you tweeted that I was utterly vindicated. <laughs> That's not precisely what I said. I tried <laughs> I tried to get a conspiracy going with, with everybody agreeing on, on Twitter that no matter what, we can't tell David French he might have been right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I hadn't watched the whole thing by then. So but so I will here here here's my overall take. One huge okay. Jack Kirby fan. So the, the 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 fact that Jack Kirby wrote for like two years at DC and the most powerful thing that DC he has the dark side universe and all the characters that came out of that was basically two years of having jack kirby that that satisfies me at a very deep level because i I mean i my 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 monthly nerd award on on uh, eternally radical ideas called the prestigious jack kirby award because i'm such a fan um i and and i'm gonna two things were true at the same time um the snyder cut was 800 times better than i thought it was going to be the movie Mm. overall is still a b plus oh oh And and here's why. Um, It needed to be an hour and a half shorter. DC can still not write dialogue. Um, And it it made some just really weird uh, decisions that hurt tension. Um, And and here's here's my thing, David. The reason why it's a B plus is because it's got a lot of A plus in there. It's also got Mm. a lot of C. Mm. That's my thinking overall. But the Flash, by the way, um, the the treatment of the Flash, and the Flash is a very important character to me because I think about the physics of traveling at super speed a lot because yeah. everyone does, really. Of course. Um, and just the fact that, you know, like the air would feel more like sand because you'd be moving. Like things would actually literally feel more fragile because by because uh, what I really think the Flash is doing is he's slowing down um, time relative to him or speeding up time relative to him. Um, so, and, and that's really, that's when, when he said that it's actually more complicated than that. That's what I've always thought the flash is really doing is he's still running at normal speed, but the, but the world outside of him, he's actually moving the speed along and that would change the physics of everything. And, and Mm -hmm. so I thought, I thought the way he presented the flash, I found it deeply, deeply satisfying. So this, I mean, we're, we're just nerding at a level of nerdery (laughs) that may, may just rip through the space time continuum, but. (laughs) <laughs> the the thing that was so inconsistent to me about the flash before mm-hmm. the Snyder cut was yep. that aside from Batman, who was really more of a facilitator and squad leader than anything else, each one of the other heroes was sort of like in the, in that classic Snyder DC mold of the gods among us, yep. you know, these people of just phenomenal, well beyond mar- typical Marvel powers, extraordinarily powerful. Yeah just extraordinarily powerful. And then there was the flash and, <laughs> and he was just fast. Yeah. And, and it just was so incongruous with sort of the whole ethos of the, that Mar of that DC um, superpower concept. And then in this movie, you're like, Oh, he is, he is, I mean, he's not on par with Superman, but he belongs in that group. He's arguably more powerful than any of them. And but the but the thing is that depends on you 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 didn't really read comic books, though, did you, David? I was not the comic, I'm the I'm the comic book movie guy, yeah. not the I was too busy <laughs> with epic fantasy fiction. Because I, I, I'm the comic I am I'm, I'm old-fashioned newsstand comic books, and I literally read Marvel uh Marvel Unlimited every night before bed because I'm trying to go through every great s- series and having read every single uh panel of every 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 single one. In the old days, 
um, before the crisis on infinite earths, which is when they united all the universes together, the flash could travel through time. He could vibrate through things. He was wildly powerful and he could travel through time. Like it was nothing. The way they Mm -hmm. actually traveled through time in the DC universe was literally, um, the flash achieves a lot by running around things. Um, um, he creates twisters, but you got to see in the movie, what, what he would do sometimes in the comic book was if everybody had to travel back through time, they just had both flashes run around them until they of course traveled back in time but he was he he was always wildly powerful but i always felt like if you really could move that fast relative to everything else you would be almost you know you could get away with anything um it'd be, i've always loved the flash yeah oh yeah oh okay right, but so, so here, here, here's a critique though about about because I'm, I'm a huge marvel guy and we, we have this argument a lot oh and by the way i will also give credit to when we were first having this argument this was before aquaman um before the first wonder woman and before um uh the, the shazam um yeah three great movies uh you know i yes. I, I i shazam is now my favorite christmas movie period i love it <laughs> um, I, I, I was more critical of the Snyder stuff because honestly, I really thought Batman versus Superman was awful. Like I, I just thought it did not work. Um, I thought all the good action took place in, in dream sequences, which by the way, was one of the problems with this is they had that really extended dream sequence once all the action was done. I also don't like mm-hmm. Ben Affleck as Batman, but okay. So one thing that I think Marvel always does better um, and does in the comic book and in the movies is it makes more believable characters and it does better dialogue. And the the most painful moment in um, uh, in the Snyder Cut for me was that moment when um, you know the bad guy is saying to the Amazonians, "It's like you, you know, bow down in fear." And and then the Queen Hippolyta goes, "It's like warriors, show them your fear." And it's a great moment. And then mm-hmm. all the warriors shout out, "We have no fear." And I'm like, "Dude, let the." It was a cool moment. We didn't need you to actually. We know you had no fear. You're attacking. I totally disagree with that. Like, the <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> thunderous response. That was like, yeah, that was. Fin- I mean, I literally got chills in that moment. I, I, I like, I like, I, I like stormed away. I was like, I didn't need to hear. <laughs> it's obviously have no fear. That was a cool moment. You didn't need to say the thing. <laughs> now, I, I freely acknowledge that what Disney has done with Marvel is pretty so remarkable. Yeah. it's pretty remarkable. I did every second of it. Of course, I've seen every Marvel movie. I've seen every second of every Marvel Love TV em. show. Love I've seen it all. I've seen everything. Mm-hmm. But in the bottom line, and, and we, we got to wrap it up, or, or listener, <laughs> and Jonah will never have me guest host. <laughs> Listenership is just going to plummet to the. Think of that one fan who's digging this. Oh, yeah. There, there's that one guy out there. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah. Um, the, the, I, a lot of it is just, there's kind at the end of the day, a lot of it is. Uh, if you take two equivalently well done movies, mm-hmm. a lot of it is there's just no accounting for the t- the atmospherics that you prefer. Yeah, and so um, w- the Marvel movies that I have always liked the best have been the ones where all the stakes felt pretty darn real. Like yeah. the best part of Endgame, you know, there there was some imagery in Endgame, and there were emotional stakes at Endgame that just it just felt like they're taking this premise seriously they're not sort of winking winking at the audience like haha this is a comic book movie yeah it's like we're diving into this world and you know and one of the to me one of the great moments in superhero cinematic history was that captain america stands alone moment oh yeah just before on your left and you know and what was so great about that it it was so consistent with the Mm -hmm. character of captain america that they had built 
year after year, movie after movie, it was almost like all of his care, his entire character was building to that exact yep. moment. And it was so well done. And so that, you know, that's when I thought Marvel just hit its peak. And I think with DC, the thing that I like about it is I feel like both with the Nolan, although it's kind of unfair to bring Nolan in. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, comparing Long everybody time. else to Michael Jordan or LeBron James. <laughs> but the, the thing with Nolan and with Snyder, mm-hmm. and I know that Snyder and Nolan apparently have, you know, a good relationship, oh. is, is that Snyder basically is saying, what if these dudes were real? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, what if they were real? Yeah. And, and it would not be a, it would not be necessarily sort of this happy impact on the earth. It would be terrifying. Just the, yeah, it'd be terrifying. It was just the way Snyder describes it. There would be sort of cultish aspects to it, fearful aspects to it. I think um, Batman v Superman. Now the ultimate edition is so much better than the theatrical release, but there's this early in Batman v Superman in the ultimate edition and, and, there's the scene of Bruce Wayne on the ground watching the superhero uh, combat between Zod and Superman. That is so, that's where you get it. Like, I get it. This is what he's doing. It's he's showing you how horrifying this is. And I think, you know, that those kinds of moments where they take the premise seriously, I think are what make it, that's when DC's at its best. Uh, and I I get that, um, but at the same time, that's why my favorite Marvel movie of all time is Civil War, because Civil War is about, it creates real stakes where both sides mm-hmm. are right about something. It's about the world backlashing against, my goodness, like you guys are way too powerful to not have under yeah. control. It's about loyalty to friends. So that, so both of the uh, two and three of Captain America are, are, are my favorites because they're kind of, they feel grittier, they feel more grounded in the real world. But one thing that I even thought of you, David, by the way, one thing that I actually think to a degree um, uh, the Marvel dialogue gets right is in times of crisis, you're not necessarily giving the tearful uh, you know, speech to your dad. I, I did well, dad. Right. I think that if we, like if, if we were in, if we suddenly got superpowers and we're in this situation, I get punchy when things get stressful. <laughs> like I start cracking yeah. bad jokes when things get stressful. And that, yeah. that actually feels in some ways almost more, and I was kind of waiting for someone to be like, ah, we're going to die. Um, and, yeah. You know, it's like we're, Batman being like, oh, we're going to die. Hey, Diana, we should date after this. You know, like basically kind of like, like the, I, I feel like some of the punchiness actually starts to feel a little like so, some of the jokes actually make a lot of emotional sense in Marvel. Yeah, I agree with that. My view on Marvel is if it was Captain America, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Captain America, Civil War, yeah. then Infinity Wars, then Endgame. Like if you had those five movies, just like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. You'd, you'd be putting that in the pantheon next to Nolan. Yeah. Um, but I, I, a I, lot I, of it, I absolutely love it. And by the way, I'd been talking about um, Captain America being able to lift Thor's hammer for like decades before this. And the and, and I had this on, ongoing discussion with Jerry Orstrom, who you may have met, who hosts a lot of book parties in New York about who can lift it. And seeing the the hammer go into to Steve Rogers' hands, I was like, thank you. <laughs> so we will end on this question. Yes. This will be the last question. When the hammer went into his hand, mm-hmm. In the when you were in the theater, did you cheer? Oh, of course. Okay, yeah, me too. <laughs> I couldn't. All right. Not. I, I think on I that, cheered and cried a little. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that on that note, we will end <laughs> the platonic discussion of cancel culture and the Snyder cut. Uh, this is David French filling in with Jonah. This has been my great friend Greg Lukianoff, and thank you, Greg, for joining us. And um, 
uh, you know, want to tell the folks where they can find you? Sure. Um, you can find me at thefire.org. I'm the president and CEO or the Eternally Radical Idea, which is my blog, uh, Eternally Radical Idea. And of course, my book, which we're coming out of the second edition of uh, my book with Jonathan Haidt, Coddling of the American Mind. Outstanding. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, listeners. We'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.